0: All right, grab your Bible and meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Today I want to share with you a word that is the concluding sermon to a set of sermons we've been working on off and on since we started the garden, took our break for Advent, but we've been working on the Apostles' Creed. We've been preaching this fundamental theology of the church across time. What we believe is not as vital as in whom we believe. We've talked a lot about that but what we believe is wrapped up in whom we believe. The what's that we believe that aren't wrapped up in whom we believe aren't worth much as far as I'm concerned. Let me say that again. The what that we believe that isn't founded in who we believe, they're not worth much because they're what's and what's are a lot of times going to shift. Who doesn't shift? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who he is, what he does, doesn't change. He's the changeless one. And when we're linked into that fundamental belief, we, we could show up in any time in church history and drop into the church with the same belief, the same core belief. You could drop into any spot on the globe, in any language, and you'd have something in common because you believe in who he is and what he has done. Otherwise, we get wrapped up in the what's of culture and politics and denominations and ancillary scriptures that we're arguing about and splitting off into various denominational or non-denominational groups so that we can be right. I think what happens a lot of times is when our faith gets wrapped up in what we believe, we get wrapped up in being right. When our faith can be landed in whom we believe, we get wrapped up in trusting the one in whom we believe. It becomes the impetus for moving forward I trust Him. I believe in Him. He's real. He's alive. Not, I've figured this out. And I'm. I'm if you've noticed, I've been pulling and working to, to bring us into a center space of whom we believe. Rather than getting wrapped up and being right about what we believe, let us put our faith in that central Figure And so we arrive at the end and I'm putting two together today. We're at the last two lines of the creed, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I bring both of these together because I don't, I honestly don't see them sitting apart. And so I, we say them apart, but I, they're the same concept in that the reason we can believe that we have life everlasting is because we have the theology of resurrection. Because if we didn't have the theology of resurrection, what would be our proof of life everlasting? And how could you have life everlasting without the idea of a resurrection? (laughs) Because death is coming to all of us. And so since death is coming to all of us, that's not meant to scare us. That's just one of those things we learn in life pretty early, is that we all meet death. But if death is the finality, then there is no reason to preach of a heaven and there's no reason to preach of an everlasting life or the life of the eternal. And the reason that we know we can preach of that is because at the core of our faith, right in the center of the creed, he descended to the dead and on the third day he rose again. And the only concept in our creedal confession as Christians that we repeat is he rose from the dead I believe in the resurrection of the dead. We don't repeat anything else in the creed. It's a straightforward prayer about whom we believe and why, but then we get to the center of the creed and Jesus comes out of the grave. And then when you get to the end of the creed, we believe we're going to come out of it. Where, it's where our faith in the future reaches back and grabs hold of our belief in the past, where we know something's coming. that has its precedent or its foundation in what has already happened. And so when we talk about resurrection, we can't talk about it through any real lens other than the one that happened in Christ. Christ, the centerpiece resurrection, becomes the very knowledge of our resurrection. And that causes us, because I believe this, and I, I, just, I like to say this up front when I talk resurrection, was we already preached the resurrection once in the creed. We preached it when we talked about Jesus coming out of the grave. And I said it then and I say it now. I'm crazy enough to believe in this. It's why I keep doing this, is I truly believe Jesus is alive. I believe I've had an encounter with Him, not in the way I have had with you, in that I physically shake your hand or hug your neck or hear your voice in the physical, but I don't believe that this is the only realm. I believe in the realm of the Spirit. I believe that we're more than we're made up of on the physical that we're more than just dirt, flesh, blood, and bone. And because I believe that, I, I believe that there's the spirit man that came directly from the breath of God. And that death is, is something that happens in this dimension to this body, but not something that happens in his And therefore, if I believe that the spirit is real and that my body is animated by the breath of God, then the very breath of God can't die. And so if this goes away, and I know this does, because life has taught me that we're all going to meet our appointment with this ending, then the me that's the real me, that's not just flesh and bone, the real essence of myself gets to live on in his presence. And that's only possible because I've Believe someone actually defeated death, that Jesus actually went into death the same way I do. He really died, in other words. And then he really resurrected from the dead. Now, where we can get into confusion is what did that look like? Well, we don't have a video camera running outside of the tomb on resurrection morning. And so we don't, that's our culture. That's how we prove stuff's real. That's why we all got, that's why we got doorbell cameras on our porch because that that proves who stole my amazon package (laughs) the proof is not in the pudding the proof's in the video so we're a we're a visual culture we believe because we see and that has made our that's challenged faith in this culture as well because faith is belief in the things you don't see believing they're more this is tough for a lot this is rub this is this isn't this isn't this. This is this. Okay. Faith is, faith is more real. Faith is believing in something more real than what you see. Yes. And that's a tough mountain to climb for a lot of people is to say, well, I don't know about that. I mean, I believe, but I don't know if it's more real than this in which I see. And, and so understanding resurrection to be something more real even than what we know in this, would mean that it wouldn't matter if we had a camera outside of the tomb on the third day after the cross. Because all that would be doing is speaking to your natural man. It still wouldn't help you comprehend what just came out of the tomb. Because the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 lays out a master class in understanding resurrection... Which doesn't mean we understand the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Just because it's a master class doesn't mean we're masters at understanding it. But as we read it, we start to get an idea about how Paul felt about resurrection. And how Paul felt about it was that resurrection is the introduction to an entirely new way of living. So let me say this up front, something I think we've said here before. Resurrection as we believe it in Christianity is not the resuscitation of a dead corpse. It is not a body that died and then gets reanimated by the breath of God and he brings it up and just builds it over again, like fixes stuff. It died with problems. He comes in, fixes the problems, breathes in it, boom, new life, now it never dies again. Paul doesn't see resurrection that way. I don't believe Jesus sees resurrection that way. And then that then sets us up for what the life of Jesus is in a resurrected reality, and sets us up for why we believe in a resurrection that is life everlasting. That's why I got to put these two together. So let's read a little bit from first Corinthians 15. I'm going to read today from the NRSV. I think this translation makes it a little, a little easier to understand than some of the ancient ones. And so I begin in verse 35 and I want to warn you, I'm going to read a little bit excessively today. We're going to read quite a bit. Um, and I'm not going to read in order either, because sometimes the writer, Paul, Paul's circular. He doesn't always make his arguments linear. Paul says something, and then he has a better idea, and he says it better, and then he goes back and says it again. So sometimes you got to move out of order a little bit with Paul to get the fullness. So let's start in 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Fool. That's a little harsh for my blood, but I didn't say it, Paul did. did. It's a little harsh to me for someone to ask a legit question and your answer to be, fool. Um, we'll, We'll leave that to Paul. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is alike, but there's one flesh for human beings. There's another for animals. There's another for birds. There's another for fish. Seems like a little bit of overkill by Paul, but we'll go with him here. He's getting to this. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. There's the glory of the heavenly is one thing and of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun. Here comes overkill again. Glory of the moon, glory of the stars. Indeed, every star differs from the star in glory. Now watch this. He's actually overkilled for a reason. He did it twice to bring us to the crux of the argument. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a physical body. It's raised a spiritual body. Boom. There's the dynamite. It goes, you hear this. I'm going to read on in a second. Let me interject. It goes into the ground as a seed. It comes out as a fruit, right? If you take a seed and you plant it in the soil, it doesn't come out as a seed. It comes out as a fruit full of seeds. What goes into the ground is not what comes out of the ground. But what goes into the ground contains what comes out of the ground. Okay. Paul says it goes in physical. It doesn't come out physical. That would be like a seed going in coming out of seed. That's one for one. That's not good produce. One for one doesn't work. One for 10,000 works. One for in perpetuity works. One tree producing 10 trees, producing 100 trees, producing 1,000 trees, producing an orchard, and it all happened in one tree. How is that possible? Because there's explosive life inside of the one thing that died. Because Jesus said, unless a seed of corn go into the ground and die, it cannot bring forth much fruit. In other words, unless you go into death, you never see what you could be. But when you go into death, Death, I know we're talking real death right now. We're going to get to spiritual death as well. When you go into death, you don't come out equal to what went in. That would be the resuscitation of a corpse. Physical body dies, physical body comes back. No, physical body dies. If there's a physical body, into 44, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, was a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Notice the first Adam is a living person, a human being. The last Adam, which, by the way, is resurrected Jesus. Resurrected Jesus is a new man on the earth. God, notice it's not second Adam, it's last Adam. God's done. He's not making a new one. In other words, the new you... Is just part and parcel of the new hymn. You, you contain whatever the new hymn is. This is, this is getting us to spiritual death. We're getting there. Go in, physical, come out, spiritual, 46. But it's not the spiritual that's first, it's the physical, and then it's the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. So just as we bore the image of the man of dust, we're also going to bear the image of the man of heaven. So in a nutshell, you have a physical man and you have a spiritual man. And the physical man gets planted but explodes into the resurrection of the spiritual. And what comes out is not at all like what went in. The possibility of being a brand new man is the whole crux of Christianity. And I don't simply mean someday when I resurrect because we get invited into his death and resurrection. But the whole possibility of this, a whole new way of living, this is part of what our faith is founded in. Go back to 22. I told you we go out of order just a little bit. Same chapter, but let's join Paul a little bit earlier. In verse 22, for as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. I want you to just dwell on that for a moment. Is everyone going to die? Yes. You wouldn't even have needed 1 Corinthians 15, 22 to get that answer right. All you got to do is live a while, right? You didn't even need Bible. But Bible's on your side. As in Adam, everyone dies. Okay, that's an easy one. Let me ask you a much harder one. Is everyone going to resurrect? Now, you need some scripture here because if all you had was what you've heard in the church, we're going to have a few different answers. And those answers are going to be something along these lines. They're going to sound varied, but a little bit like this. Well, no, not everybody's going to resurrect. Only the people that accepted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior prayed the sinner's prayer and got baptized. Or, well, I don't know. I think they'll resurrect, but they won't really resurrect unto life. They'll just resurrect so they can get judged and sent back to the lake of fire and burn forever. That's another variant. Paul doesn't deal right here with what happens afterwards, except this thought drives Paul. Reread it. As all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. And here's Paul's only qualifier, 23. Each in his own order. Christ is the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. After he's destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. So I don't get to decide who belongs to Christ. But Paul throws that caveat in. He goes, as in Adam, everyone's going to die. In Christ, all will be made alive. Christ is the first one to come out. Then everyone who belongs to Christ. Okay, well, then they belong to Christ. Paul, why doesn't make the rules? I'm so glad I don't get to be the one who is the check mark guy at resurrection. God goes through and goes, hey, do you think this guy ought to come out or not? Because I'd have a whole lot of reasons to leave some people in. <laughs> We all would, just being honest. I know a whole lot of reasons to go, eh, let's don't bring that guy out. He was bad enough when he was here the first time. Just leave, let's leave him in there. So I don't get to decide who's in Christ. I leave that up to Christ. So all who's in Christ, his that is coming, he hands the kingdom over to his Father. After he's destroyed every ruler, we're at the end of 24. After he's destroyed every ruler and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so there we go. The kingdom that Jesus presents to his father is a kingdom full of resurrected people. Those who are his, he resurrects. This is Paul's doctrine of the resurrection of the body. Resurrection... We're coupling two today, right? Resurrection, life everlasting. What do those two things have to do with each other? Well, part of it is the fact that we know that if you resurrect, you've entered into a a realm in which death isn't possible. And therefore, if you've resurrected, then you must live forever. But what does that look like in relation to us? Go to 2 Corinthians. Paul writes a second letter to the Corinthians. Paul actually probably writes three letters to the Corinthians. Two have survived. We've got to assume these are the two the Holy Spirit wanted the church across time to see. Maybe the third one dealt with other things that aren't important to us, but we have two of those surviving letters. And 2 Corinthians really ratchets up the Pauline theology of Christianity. If you read those two books in order and watch as in 2 Corinthians, Paul really takes you to another another level in regards to the understanding of who we are in Christ. I want to start in verse 1 of chapter 5. I think chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, it's one of my top chapters in all of Paul's writing. I think there's a, a certain level of brilliance here. But Listen how he says this in verse 1. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, this is your body, by the way. It's a good little allegory for your body. Your earthly tent you live in is destroyed. You have a, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, Eternal in the heavens. In this tent we groan. Yes, we do. And the older we get, the more we groan. Right? True. Longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. If indeed when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. I, I take off this tent. I'm not naked because I'm clothed in the heavenly clothing. So, this is just my suit. This is, it's, it's a little bit like clothes. He doesn't use clothes, he uses tent as an allegory. But he a little bit, this is just my tent. I'm, I'm moving through this space, and this is the tent that I'm in, and this thing isn't going to last forever but I'm not going to be naked. I'm going to be clothed over. Verse 4, while I'm still in this tent, then I groan under our burden. Because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who prepared us for this very thing is God who gave us the spirit as a guarantee. Paul shifts. Notice, Paul goes, we're not actually wishing we could die. We're just wishing that the real us would reach out and swallow up the tempt. Because I'm not not looking to take on something I don't have. I'm looking to get rid of the thing I, I see that isn't as real as the thing I am. I'm looking forward to the real me swallowing up the image of me this is the image this is the transient earthbound tent in first corinthians the man of dust this is why it's appropriate when we do a funeral and we say as it is written from dusty came to dusty returns i've heard some pushback on that in new covenant circles like no you're not dust you're the spirit of god yeah, you are the Spirit of God, but that's the tent from the other dimension. That's the you from the other dimension. you got to get this tent off. This dirt's going back to dirt. But it's not you. It's just what I see of you. It's the you that was time-bound, that lived its life. And maybe it lived its life short, and maybe it lived its life long, and maybe it lived its life full, and maybe it lived its life miserable. We live our lives in different ways. And the beauty of us walking this out together is that we are we are trusting that we've tapped into, as Paul said in verse 5, we've been prepared for the very thing by the Holy Spirit that's been given to us already as a guarantee. That word guarantees a down payment. So the Holy Spirit's been put in me as a down payment on the thing that I'm going to. And so part of our fellowship as believers is that we're recognizing something in each other that we have in ourselves. We're recognizing the Spirit of God. And it's okay then that at times it feels like this. It's also okay that at times it feels like this because this tempt is still in the way. And you're going to disagree with the other balls of dirt. It's okay. Just not gonna get along with all these mud pies. <laughs> but what unifies us is not skin, language, flags, politics, or ideology. And when they become the unifier, we become more at odds because we have now identified ourselves with citizenship, nationality, politics, ideology, skin, gender, preference, sexuality, language rather than the spirit of god and so why we rally in the church around whom we believe is because it is the essential thing that makes us who we are it is what joins us and links us in this holy spirit is the fact that the holy spirit is a down payment in you and the down payment in you and a down payment in you and what makes me like you not like you in the sense of i like how you act but what makes me alike is that we share in having in us the very life of God through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So in effect, some things have happened. Paul does this little, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to read all of chapter 5, okay? 2 Corinthians 5 is a, is a brilliant breakdown. So what I will do is, um, let me highlight you, okay? Just let me highlight it for you to lead you up to the next reading. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul gives you the assurance of a resurrection. We just read that. You're going to live again. Then Paul turns you into one of the most famous passages in the Bible. You shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Right? you know that? You may not have known that was next, but that's next in 2 Corinthians 5. Well, why does he put it there? Well, because resurrection has us stepping into the presence of who Jesus is. And the presence of who Jesus is, is a man who's already been to the cross and has taken into him the judgment of the world. Remember what Jesus says in John 12. Now is the prince of this world cast out. Now is the time for judgment. And if I be lifted up, I will draw all men into me. Better word in the Greek. I will drag. That's that's the Greek word. If I be lifted up, I will drag all men to me. I like to think you're coming in even if you're kicking and screaming. But I leave that up to him. He's the dragger. (laughs) I I don't know how he's going to do that. I like to believe that he knows how to drag, whether it's in this life or the next. I leave that to him. I can't, honestly, I I don't deal with your next life. I know the church thinks it specializes in dealing with people's heavens and hells. The reality is, is, I don't deal with your next life. I've not been to the next life. I'm living this one out. The proclamation of the gospel was never, hey, come accept Jesus, you can go to heaven and miss hell. Read the gospels. The proclamation of the kingdom was the king has come and he offers you his life. You can get in on the kingdom now. The king has come and he can be Lord of all the stuff that's lording over you. The king has come and he invites you into the kingdom so that you can taste the fruits of the kingdom. So the church isn't about prepping you for what happens after you die. The church is about inviting you into a death that's already happened so that you can experience a resurrection that's ongoing so that you can begin to live the life of God now. So that you can step into what the kingdom is now. Otherwise, all we're doing is waiting to die. And Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundant. But we preach it as if he said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it after you die. But he tells us that we could have it more abundant because we're entering into it now. And the fact that we're entering into it now means that we're entering into a resurrection and the only thing on the other side of resurrection is an everlasting life. And so entering into a resurrection, we stand in front of the judgment seat of Christ. I, I believe the judgment seat of Christ is happening in us all the time. I, I, really, I really do. I believe that is, if you will allow him, Christ is always parsing the difference between what's really you and what's not. If you'll listen, he's always separating the wheat from the chaff. He's the one with the fan in his hand purging his floor. He's busy on that right now if you'll let him. This is why sometimes it should feel like this. Because you brought some chaff to the wheat party. Right? And the Holy Spirit goes, hey, I got some stuff I want to do on you. This week, I got some stuff I'm saying to you. And, and sometimes we go, no, I don't want to hear it. I, I'm comfortable in this or do it. And the Holy Spirit is uh, Jesus. Uh, the, the one who's blowing the massive fan across our heart is merely separating what is real about us from what isn't real about us. And that's a beautiful work that is ongoing all the time. That's the furnace of the consuming fire of God, by the way. The furnace where Jesus dwells, the fourth man in the fire invites you in to say, come on in here where I am. And let me do this work. And so we get an assurance of resurrection. Then we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And then Paul shifts and starts telling us we have the, we've received the ministry of reconciliation. Which is an amazing turn now. Because Paul now has let us know we're going to resurrect. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And now let me teach you why all of that is important to what you should go out and preach. What should you go out and preach, he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. And here's that ministry. Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. We talked about this last week, how forgiveness of sins is so vital because it's God deciding he's out of the bookkeeping business. He is not counting your transgressions against you. That's the ministry of reconciliation. And entrusting that message to us. Oh, man, what a responsibility. Look at that. Paul thought that Jesus had entrusted the ministry of reconciliation to the church. My question is, after 20 centuries, how good are we doing? I'm not sure, because I know people in the church that, are, that have been in the church for decades that couldn't tell you what the ministry of reconciliation even means. They couldn't open their Bible and show you that God's not counting transgressions against us. We don't know what it means when we say we've been reconciled to God through the death of His Son on the cross. We're going to get to what that cross meant in just a second, because I'm going to throw in a bonus this morning. All right, I'm warning you right now. There's going to be a bonus to the Apostles' Creed. It's going to be a P.S., after the signature today, all right, that we're getting to. So we're ambassadors, 20. We're ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making His appeal through us, we entreat you, or we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And there it is. I'm an ambassador of what's already been done, and I'm begging you, please reconcile yourself to a God who's not mad at you. Reconcile yourself to a God who's not counting your transgressions against you. Reconcile yourself to a God who hung on a cross, who was, shamed, who was Who was despised and rejected of men, who lived his life as a sacrifice and gave his life on our behalf. I beg you, reconcile yourself. That's the message of the church. I'm begging you, reconcile yourself to that. The work is finished. Please don't go through life acting like it's not finished. Don't leave believing that you've got to go do it when you, you can just step into what he has done and begin to experience the joys of our Lord. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And there it is. So God made him to be sin so that I could be made righteous. I'm begging you to reconcile yourself to that truth. I'm begging you to let that become your reality. That's the whole message of the gospel. Paul said entreat. That's beg. We should be begging. Not intimidating, not browbeating, begging. I'm begging you to meet Him. I'm begging you to listen to Him. I'm begging you to let Him love you. I'm begging you to pay attention to the sound of the Spirit. I'm begging you to let Him blow the the fan of His love across both the embers of your heart and the separated wheat in the chaff. I'm begging you to let the Master go to work. I entreat you. I beg it. This is the foundation of the gospel and the ministry of what we're trying to accomplish when we pray this prayer, when we say this in the creed. Let me give you one more. John 11, no message on resurrection is complete without a visit to Lazarus' tomb. So let's not finish without a visit quickly to Lazarus' tomb. I'll not insult your intelligence. I know you know the Lazarus story. I know you know that Jesus waits four days to go to Bethany so that Lazarus is good and dead. Right. He waits four days to go to Bethany and everyone thinks it's too long. And Martha says, oh, Lord, he stinks. We can't roll that. stuff. you know, this story, but I want to make sure that we ground our understanding of resurrection in the words of Jesus, because as far as I'm concerned, Jesus is the central figure of our entire faith. He's everything we are and everything we aspire to be and everything we live out of is Christ Jesus, the resurrected Crucified and resurrected and ascended Christ Jesus. And so let's look at him in John eleven twenty one. I know we're jumping into the middle of a conversation. But we'll start with Martha saying to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to Him, I know He'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now watch this next couple of statements. They're quite incredible. They don't get enough time, as far as I'm concerned, in our theology. Those who believe in Me, even though they die, they will live. There it is. This is Jesus connecting resurrection of the body with life everlasting. Even though they die, they will live. Now watch this. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus says, do you believe this? Why does Jesus say, do you believe this? Because it's kind of unbelievable. Let's just reread what he said. If you believe in me, even if you died, you're going to live. And everyone who's alive and believes in me will never die. Well, which one is it? You said, if I believe in you, I'll never die. And then you said, if anyone dies they get to live Jesus goes do you believe this Well, I think the answer would be well I don't know what to believe I just believe in you that's probably a good answer I don't know what to believe I just believe in you and that works and boom here comes Lazarus but the truth is they're both true that if a man believes on Christ what belief on Christ is is entering into Christ's death And then he gets to experience the life that never ends. You get to get started on it now. This can become what C.S. Lewis called, this becomes the lobby of heaven. I like that. Lewis also said, and for those who reject him, you might realize this was the lobby of hell. That's pretty deep. It's like whatever, whatever needs purged, you'll realize maybe it got started in your first rejection of Jesus and your first decision to do it without Him. That's where hell starts to take its real reality in you is to go try this without Him. Because if a man believed in me, he would never die. If he dies, he'll live. They're both true. If a man believes in me, death is just a speed bump. Flesh, tent goes off, life everlasting. But in reality, that man never actually dies because he lives even though he drops this tent. So I believe in a resurrection. I believe in an actual resurrection. I don't believe that I know what it looks like. Flesh goes into the ground, spirit comes out. Don't assume those are the same thing. And so whatever he does in resurrection is a whole new way of living. Now, I want to give you my PS today to the Apostles' Creed, okay? I want to give you, and I'm not, I'm not going to hog your time, I promise. I know where we are on the clock. I try, to, I try to honor your Sunday morning, not run you off and go, I'm never going back. They wore me out. So <laughs> I try to honor that every week, all right? And I don't skimp on our prayers together and on our Eucharist. So let's say this, three quick points. I want to ask you, why did Jesus have to die? Now, that's a loaded question. And it's going to get 15 different theological answers, maybe 1,500. Why did Jesus have to die? But for, for, for what I put forth as the theology of the pulpit at the garden, I want to say three things. Number one, the Bible does not say that you deserve to die a torturous, humiliating public death. So Jesus did it on your behalf. I know we love to hear that theology in the ch- church. We'll go... If Jesus hadn't died on the cross, I had to. No, no one was going to put you on a cross if Jesus didn't die. Jesus doesn't die so that you don't die. You still die, right? Jesus doesn't die so that you don't die. Jesus doesn't die in place of you so that you won't be tortured. Jesus steps into the death that all of us will experience. And that leads to number two. Instead of seeing Christ's death as the sacrifice, start to see Christ's life as the sacrifice. And maybe that will help you with stuff like present yourselves a living sacrifice unto God. Because what Jesus is inviting you to do is to step into His death. You're going to die. He just beat you to the punch. Jesus has stepped into death and invites you into his. And you get to start that journey now. I accept his death as mine. I step into him by faith. And part of that is my life is a living sacrifice. Because Jesus' life was a living sacrifice. His life was every day. Father, what do you want to do today? Because I often read the Gospels and go, why didn't Jesus just do this right here? That's the temptation of the wilderness. Remember when the devil goes, throw yourself off of this and they'll catch you. You know why he says, what a way to start your ministry. Like you'll always have converts. If you just go into the room and do something miraculous, there's always going to be a shortcut for you. You're really good at this. But Jesus' whole life is a sacrifice of going, Father, what do you want to do today? And so sometimes he enters at Bethesda in the the Gospel of John. He goes into an open-air hospital, and he heals one man who's been sick 38 years. And I often wonder, why didn't he heal all the other guys? I don't know, but he listens to his father. His life is a sacrifice. His life is not, I do everything I want to do all the time when I want to do it. That's modernity. I do everything I want to do when I want to do it. Nobody's going to tell me how to live my life. Listen, you no longer get to say no one's going to tell me how to live my life when you sign up with Jesus. Your entire life is Jesus instructing you in living your life. We have to drop the bumper sticker of modernity to follow Christ into the way of the cross. Because I get to do what I want to do when I want to do it, this is all about me, is dead if your life is a living sacrifice. And finally... In loving humanity and being committed to giving us the life of God, Jesus was rejected. Jesus was despised. That's the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What was the sin of the world? It was taking the love of God and despising and rejecting it. The collective sin of the world is that we shove away God's answer. God's answer is love God and love your neighbor. And the definition of loving your neighbor is love your enemy. And we go, we can't do that, that doesn't work. That's a weak Jesus. That won't work in today's geopolitical environment. We can't follow Christ into that way. And that's the sin of the world. And we've carried that sin with us across cultures and times and nations. And we still espouse that sin. That this won't work. That dying doesn't beat Rome. If you wanna beat Rome, you gotta go kill Caesar. And Jesus goes, I'll take that sin. That sin into me. And I'll show you a new way of victory. A way of stepping into death. But God's love is too strong. He wouldn't stay dead. We're invited into His death. Dying in Him. Raising with Him. I invite you into His death by accepting that the death is for you. We step into that. We live out of his resurrection and we anticipate the life of the world to come. It's why I've done a lot of funerals. Dozens, hundreds, I don't know. I've been at this 30 years. Pastored for many, many years. You, put, you bury a lot of people. And when you do and you bury a saint One of the great assurances is that most of the people know that they were saints because we don't hopefully hide our Christianity. Most people realize this person had a testimony. and So then it becomes easy to say that one of the foundational core beliefs of what we are looking at is merely what's been left behind, but who they really are lives on with the Lord forever. And that is a blessed assurance for every believer that this is not the end But I always feel like it's so insufficient if we leave with the idea that the best thing this person carried through life was the idea that once they die, they get to go to heaven. I always try to convey, and some people make it easier than others with the way they live their lives. But I always try to convey this individual would would want you to know that the life they're experiencing now is simply the life minus their tent. They were already living that life on this earth. They were already living the love of God and the life of heaven. They just had to shed the tent. And we're here at the tent shedding party. And then you get to understand that you get to step into that now. Father, would you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank you for this word. And I thank you for what you've done in me this week with this word and... I thank you for this life journey that I'm on of trying to understand and comprehend this. And I pray that, Father, as we have fresh revelations of your resurrection, we'll realize that it is the beginning of our resurrection and our life everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen.